One of the things I love most about God is that He has a way during the darkest, most difficult times in our lives of doing some of the most absolutely amazing things. And I would imagine today everyone here could give an example in your life of how you were going through something really hard, and right in the middle of that, God's grace and God's mercy showed up, and He did some of His greatest work in the midst of your dark time. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 7, we see exactly that. We see God during the tribulation period doing something absolutely amazing. As we're working our way through Revelation on Sunday morning, last week we came to chapter 6 where we began our study of that seven-year period that will one day come upon the earth of unthinkable horror, wrath, and even judgment from God. We saw last week that at the beginning of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will come on the scene and he'll make a peace treaty with the world, promising that if everybody will follow him, there'll be peace. Halfway through that peace treaty, he'll break that and he will demand to be worshipped himself. We saw last week that following the Antichrist was war on the earth, like unto which the world has never known. That war, as is so often the case, will be followed by famine, and not only that, by widespread death. As we saw last week, approximately 2 billion people will lose their lives at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Not only that, there will be cosmic disturbances, earthquakes, Uh, mountains will be moved from the places where they've always been. Islands will be moved from their place. And so it's going to be an absolutely unbelievable time. And yet in chapter 7, which is the passage we're studying today, we see two of God's greatest attributes. We see, first of all, His grace, and then we see the mercy of God. In fact, let's start this morning by thinking about the mercy of God in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. John said, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, when John describes these four angels at the four corners of the earth, the Bible is not teaching that the earth is flat. We know that's not true. What the Bible is saying is it's talking about the four points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. And John said, I saw an angel at each one of those locations, and the angel at each location was stopping the wind from blowing. There was, if we could say it this way, a lull in the storm. Now remember, the storm is God's judgment on those who've never been saved. Their sins have never been forgiven, and so God, as a holy God, has to judge and punish those unforgiven sins. And yet, in the middle of the storm of His judgment, we see a pause, a lull in the storm. The wind stops blowing, and during this lull, some amazing things happen. In fact, if you look at chapter 7, the big picture of it, you'll notice there are two major headings. Verses 1 through 8 talk about 
a large number of Jewish people who will be saved during the tribulation. And then beginning in verse 9 to the end of the chapter, we read about a large number of Gentiles who will be saved. They're described as a great multitude from every tribe and from every nation. So many people will be saved in this multitude that it won't even be possible to count the numbers. It would not be humanly possible, God knows, but we couldn't even count how many people are being saved. And what I had originally planned on doing was covering this entire chapter this morning. And had we done that, I'm pretty sure I could have had you out of here by 3 o'clock this afternoon. But even yesterday when I was finishing this sermon, I just felt in my heart, today we should focus only on the Jewish people who will be saved during the tribulation. And then we'll come back next Sunday morning and I'll preach the sermon title that I had for today, A Great Revival and the Beheading of Many Christians. I want us next week to think about this great multitude of Gentiles who will be saved, largely as a result of the witness of the 144,000 Jews who are going to be saved and who will become evangelists for God. And then we'll think next week about how many of those will be beheaded. They will be killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm taking two weeks to do what I had originally planned on doing in one one week. And so I want us to begin now thinking about the mercy of God as he, during this storm of judgment, stops the wind from blowing and gives people a chance on earth to pause, to think about what's happening, and to get saved. Let me give you a verse from the Old Testament that I came across this week that I think beautifully describes Revelation chapter 11. In Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, the Bible says, In wrath, remember mercy. Say those four words with me. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, what what the writer of the Scripture is saying, God, in your wrath, in your judgment, remember your mercy, God. And that's exactly what we see God doing here. And he, first of all, extended his mercy, and he extended his grace, or he will extend it, to the Jewish people in a very special way. Let's pick up in verse number 4. John said, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then beginning in verse 5, we have a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you're a real Bible student and you study the 12 tribes back in Genesis and you compare those tribes to these tribes, you're going to see a slight variation or a slight change here and there. It's insignificant. It doesn't amount really to anything. It's just that other members of those tribes are brought forth and mentioned. But in verse 5, notice what it says. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And it says this of all the tribes. Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So you have these 12 tribes in Israel. And out of each tribe... 12,000 people will be saved during the tribulation, leading it to a total of 144,000 Jewish people saved at this time. Now, in the Bible, 12 is a very important number. All numbers are important in the Bible, but 12 especially so. 12 is God's governmental number. 
Again, in the Old Testament, we had the 12 patriarchs. In the New Testament, we had the 12 apostles of Christ. In heaven, there are 12 gates leading into the city of heaven. There are 12 angels at those gates. The wall around heaven has 12 foundations, and the 12 foundations have the name of the 12 apostles of Christ. And so 12 is God's governmental number. Again, here, the 12 tribes of Israel... And 12,000 are saved from each tribe, leading to 144,000 Jewish people saved at this part of the tribulation. Now, let me say this about the nation of Israel. And I know about six or so weeks ago, I spent a lot of time talking about Israel. I want to come back today and spend a little bit of time talking about Israel now. Israel is unique among the nations of the world. There's no nation on the earth today that is like Israel. It was birthed by God. All of its history, it has been blessed by God. Yes, there has been time when God has judged His people. There has even been times where God has allowed His people to be moved out of the promised land, out of Israel. But nonetheless, Israel is uniquely blessed of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave the place where you are. Go to the place where I will show you. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Israel is the only nation in the world that has the God-given responsibility to bless all the other nations. God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so God has a special blessing on the nation of Israel. Israel is also unique in this. And this, this is to me the most significant thing about Israel. Israel is the nation where Jesus was born. It's the place where he grew up. It's the place where he was crucified. It's the place where he was buried. It was in Israel that he rose from the dead. He ascended to uh, the Father in heaven 40 days later. And one day it will be back to the nation of Israel that Jesus Christ returns and there in Jerusalem to set up his millennial reign of a thousand years. And so there's no nation in the earth, on the planet, that is quite like Israel. If we were talking to God today and we said, God, what is your favorite city in the world? God would say, well, I love them all, but I have a special place in my heart for Jerusalem and for the nation of Israel at large. Not only is God uh, have a special place for Israel, but God protects the nation of Israel as the apple of his eye. In Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8, we read that expression that God protects Israel as the apple of his eye. That word apple could literally be translated pupil. If somebody came up to you today and started to poke you in the eye, what would you do? Well, after you punch them in the mouth, you would protect your eye, right? Because the pupil is a very tender part of our body. And if somebody was poking you in that, you would do everything you could to get them off of you. Well, that's how God is with Israel. There are many people through history that have poked Israel in the eye. And God has protected Israel, and God has punished and judged and will one day more so the nations who have done that. The nation of Israel today has less than 9 million people who live there. And yet it is surrounded by 300 million people, many of whom, not all, but many of whom would love to see the nation of Israel obliterated from the face of the earth. It is a democracy in the midst of a non-democratic world. 
And so Israel is a very unpopular nation today. And yet God has protected the nation all through her history. Not only that, Israel is unique because God promised a long time ago that even though the Jewish people would be scattered from their land, taken into Babylonian captivity, taken away into other places, that God would regather the Jewish people and that he would bring them home. There's no nation on the planet that for all practical purposes was completely, I hate to use the word extinct, but there is a political sense in which Israel was extinct for almost 2,000 years. They were scattered across the world beginning in in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and tore down and burned up Herod's temple, carried many Jewish people to Rome. They were killed there in the Colosseum. And from that point on, Jewish people were scattered all over Europe, all over the world. And if you study who occupied that piece of real estate that we know is Israel, the Holy Land today, between 70 AD and 1948, you'll find that it was occupied by virtually everyone but the Jewish people until 1948 on May the 14th when God had completed a process or completed a large part of the process of bringing the Jews back home and the nation of Israel was reborn in one day. A language, the Hebrew language that had largely been out of commission, if not completely out of commission, that's debatable, but certainly largely out of commission, for 1,900 years began to be reborn. The nation was reborn. God had regathered his people. And there's, I'm just saying there's no country in the world who has a history like that. And not only that, I'm talking about the past, what God has done with Israel, but God in the future has made a promise that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, will be saved. Now, that being said, let me give you some scriptures to write down. We won't take time to look them all up, but let me give them to you, and I'll read them for you. In Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24, listen to what it says. God said, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Well, he's already done that. And he's even doing that now as Jewish people continue to return to Israel in large numbers. So that part has and is being fulfilled. But in verse 25, we read something that has not been fulfilled. It's not happened yet. And yet God promised that it would. He said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And so here God is talking not only about the physical return of the Jewish people to Israel, but he's talking about a day that will come in the future. It has happened with many Jews now. Many Jews have been saved. But the majority of the Jewish nation has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And God made a promise, one day that's going to happen. One day the Jewish state will turn to me and they will be saved. Dr. David Jeremiah in his book about Revelation and about end times, he says, and I think, it's a, I think it's a fair quote, he said, what is happening in Israel today is largely a secular Zionist movement. 
What does he mean by that, secular? He means it's not primarily spiritual. Now, I would say that, and the, Dr. Jeremiah's spirit, he would certainly say the same thing. It is spiritual in the sense that prophecy is being fulfilled. So that part is spiritual. But what he's saying is, to the Jews today who are moving back to the land, it's more about the land. It's more about the independence of the nation. It's more about their country than really it is about God and certainly than it is about Jesus Christ. When he described what's happening in Israel today as a secular Zionist movement, what he meant by that clearly is that the Jewish people today, for the large part, are not saved. They, are, they have not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so in Ezekiel, God has promised, first, I'm bringing you back to the land. He's done that. Second, God says, after you've been established in the land, you are going to be saved. You are going to recognize Jesus Christ as your Messiah. Let me give you another scripture in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 10. God said, I will pour out, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they, who is they? The Jewish people, the house of David, will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And so God said there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will recognize Jesus Messiah, himself Jewish, died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And at that time, they will be saved. One of the scriptures, if you want to write down in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26 in the New Testament, it says there's coming a day when all Israel will be saved. Now, that hasn't happened yet. That prophecy has not been fulfilled yet, and yet it will be. Now, you might be asking this question. Well, why haven't more Jews been saved? Why are the majority of Jewish people uh, not open to Jesus Christ being their Messiah and being their Lord. Well, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to see just a few verses here that address this issue. And what is true, by the way, of the Jewish people is true also of Gentiles. It's not just the Jews that this applies to, but this passage does speak uniquely to the Jewish people, and it gives us some insight as to why they have not received Jesus Christ, not yet, as their Lord and their Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 14, it says, Their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lays on their heart. And so he's saying the Jewish people can go to synagogues today, and they do. And the leader gets up and he reads from Moses and many of Moses' writings and prophecies are talking about the coming of the Messiah and yet the Jewish people in large number hear that and there's like a veil over their eyes or a veil over their heart and they're not able to see that Moses, what Moses was prophesying has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's no different for many people today who are not Jewish. Many, maybe even in this service today, or maybe some, will hear the gospel about Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his offer of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life, and yet you hear that, and it's in one ear, and it's out the other. And I'm up here telling you how you can be saved, and you're thinking about, well, where are we going to have lunch? When's this all going to end? When can I go on to the next part of the day? Well, it's like there's a veil over your eyes or over your heart. You're just not interested. And in order to be saved, that veil has to be lifted. 
And you have to be able to see that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross for the world, but he died on the cross to pay for your sins. But you'll never see that until the veil is lifted. Now, the question is, how is the veil lifted? Well, it tells us in verse number 16. Paul tells us exactly how the veil is lifted. He said, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the veil is lifted when a person turns to Christ. Now, certainly before a person can turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit has to convict them, reveal their need to be saved. No one can come to Christ unless we're drawn to be saved. But once that happens, we turn to the Lord and we accept Him by faith, and then the veil is lifted. I think there are a lot of people who say this about God and faith and Jesus. They say, well, if I could only understand more, then I would believe. I have several questions that are yet unanswered, and if I could only get my questions answered, then I would believe. But the Bible says, no, that's backwards. You don't understand and then believe. You believe in order to understand. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, the Bible says, by faith, we understand that the world was created. How do you, how do we But why do we believe in creation? We believe it by faith. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we believe that by faith. We don't understand that. We don't know exactly how God did that other than the account we have in Genesis. But we take it by faith. And so since we take it by faith, it's easy for us to understand. It's easy for us to believe. Because we just accept that God did it. So faith precedes understanding. It doesn't follow understanding. Now, what I want to do in the remainder of our time today, I want to mention five things that every Christian has in common with these 144,000 converted Jews. Because you may be thinking, John, you're talking about the nation of Israel and Jewish people and They've come back to the land, and that's good for them and good for God, and we're glad it all happened, and one day they're going to be saved, and that's going to be a beautiful thing. But what in the world does this have to do with me here and now? So I want to mention five things, if you're saved today, that you have in common with these 144,000 converted Jews. Number one, they are chosen by God, and so are we. Why do they get saved? They get saved because God chose them to be saved. God chose 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes. Why did you get saved? Why am I saved? First and foremost, we're saved because before we were ever born, God chose us. The Scripture said that we were chosen by God from the foundation of the world. And so long before you were in your mother's womb, God chose you. Before you ever made a decision to choose Jesus Christ, God had already chosen you. They're chosen, and we are chosen. The second thing we have in common with them is simply this. They have a salvation experience, and so do we. If you're saved, not only did God choose you, but you can look back somewhere in the history of your life, and there was a time when you came to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 14. I want us to spend just a moment looking at some verses here. And in verse number 3, it's talking about these 144,000 Jews now. And it's talking about a song that they sing to the Lord. And it says, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. 
and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Notice that word redeemed. They were saved. Not only were they chosen to be saved, but they responded to God's offer of salvation. You know, perhaps no controversy has troubled the church for 2,000 years, certainly for 500 years, the last 500 years, than this whole matter of God's divine election, His sovereignty, being chosen by God. We call it predestination. And at the same time, the responsibility of man to be saved. There are some over here who say God has chosen whom God has chosen. The people who he wants to be saved are going to be saved. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's no need to go out and share your faith. There's no need for a preacher to give an invitation. Whoever has been chosen is going to be saved. We call, some people call that the frozen chosen because they don't do anything. They just think it's all predetermined by God. There's another group over here that says, no, I don't believe that. I believe it's all up to us. We have the responsibility to be saved. And, God, and, and, and so it's all on the emphasis of man. Well, the truth biblically is always in the balance. See, both extremes are wrong if that's the only thing you emphasize. But when you put them together, you find the truth. And there's one verse in the New Testament that puts them all together. In John chapter 6, in verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, now there's divine election, will come to me. There's the free will of man. And the one who comes to me, Jesus said, I'll in no wise cast out. And there's salvation. So we have God choosing us, and then we have to respond to that. And when that happens, that's when we're saved. Now, you may be listening to that and saying, now, wait a second. You're saying God has chosen me to be saved. How do I know God has chosen me? The way that you can know God has chosen you is that you come to Jesus Christ and you get saved. The proof that you've been chosen is that you want to be saved. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. God doesn't choose anybody. I don't believe that God chooses anybody to go to hell. I don't understand everything about predestination and election, but I believe this, knowing the heart of God and the teaching of Scripture, nobody is going to end up in hell and say it's God's fault because I'm here. God didn't choose me. No, the reason people are going to end up in hell is because they have rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I can't explain it or make it any clearer than that. I'm just saying today the Bible teaches God's sovereign. He does choose us, but also we have a responsibility. Somebody has said that when we get to heaven, above the, one of the gates in heaven, there's going to be a, a sign that says, whosoever will may come. And we can just, we'll see that whosoever will, that includes me. And so I walk right through that gate. And once we get in there, now we're on the inside of heaven, we're going to look back at that gate from the inside view, and we're going to see the inside of that sign, and the sign's going to say, chosen from the foundation of the world. I don't understand it. I cannot reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Both are taught in the Bible. I accept them both. I believe them both. I preach them both. I'll understand it more when I get to heaven. But I believe that God chooses us to be saved, but I believe we have a responsibility to receive Jesus Christ. If you believe that, say amen. One of my favorite pastors was preaching in a service one day, and he was preaching to a group of people who only believed in divine election, and they did not believe in the responsibility of man. They didn't believe in giving an invitation after the sermon. And so they said to that pastor, please, pastor, when you finish preaching today, don't give an invitation. Just dismiss the service. And he said, well, why not? I always give an invitation, and I always give people a chance to come and be saved. And they said, well, pastor, we just believe that who's going to be saved is going to be saved, and nothing we can do about it. 
And it bothered that pastor because all through the Scripture we have invitations. Jesus said, come to me, whosoever will may come. Jesus died for everybody to be saved. And the pastor was troubled, and he said to the man who said that to him, he said, how about this? He said, how about after my sermon today, maybe I'll just will whistle just as I am, and the elect will recognize the tune. And I thought that was pretty good. I don't know if he did that or not, but I nonetheless thought that was pretty good. The point is... We have a responsibility. How I settle the whole thing about election and free will, when we get to heaven, we'll understand more about election and predestined. We'll understand more about that. But down here on the earth, it is our responsibility to share Christ and give people an opportunity to be saved. But we have this in common with them. They have a salvation experience, and so do we. And let me ask, pause and ask you now. Do you have a salvation experience in your past? Do you know at the end of the service in the first hour this morning, there was one gentleman who came forward making some decision. I think he came to join the church. But after the service, a lady came up to my dad, and I only knew about this right before this service. And she didn't even know my dad was the pastor. She just knew he was standing down here at the end of the service, and she wanted to talk to somebody. And she reached out her hand, introduced herself, and said, sir, this is the first time for me to ever visit this church. And my dad said, well, how old are you? She said, I'm 24 years old. And she said, that man was up there today talking about we have a responsibility to get saved. And she said, when he was saying that, something happened in my heart. And she said, I don't understand all about it, but she said, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven of my sins. And about an hour and a half ago, right in this room, a 24-year-old prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come in her heart. She has a salvation experience. And I'm asking you, do you have that in your past? Do you have a salvation experience? You can't just sit back and say, well, I believe God's chosen me. I have no responsibility. Yes, you do. Number three thing we have in common with these 144,000, they are sealed and so are we. They have the seal of God on their foreheads, and we've been sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee that we're saved. One of the ways I know I'm saved, the Holy Spirit lives in me. He assures me of my salvation. He convicts me when I sin, and he's God's down payment. He's God's earnest money, as it were to me. He is God's guarantee that I am truly saved. I have the Spirit of God living on me. In me. The fourth thing we have in common with them, they serve God. So should we, as we'll see next week. Evidently, these 144,000 converted Jews become evangelists, preachers, missionaries for Jesus. And as a result, many get saved because of their work. We should do the same thing. And not only that, they are eternally secure. And so are we. In Revelation 14, look at the first verse. John said, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this Revelation 14, is, my understanding of this, is describing heaven. We read about the throne of God. That's in heaven. We read about the living creatures and the 24 elders and the angels. We've been studying in previous week. This is all in heaven. And so now the 144,000 have moved from earth to heaven. And now that's where they are. And John sees them. John says, wow, the ones who got saved on the earth, 144,000, I see that same number now in heaven, 144,000. Notice he doesn't say, I saw 143,997 Jews in heaven. Three of them got lost. No, all 144,000. What does that say to us? It says that our salvation is secure. Jesus will never lose anyone who puts their faith and trust in him. If I knew of no other verse in the Bible, why I believe in the eternal security of the believer, John 3, 16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have, what's the next word? Everlasting life. Think about this. Everlasting life. If a person gets saved or when a person gets saved, he receives everlasting life. Now, how could you lose something that lasts forever? You can't. You can't lose your salvation. Now, sometimes a person will say, well, this person said they, you know, they got saved when they were 10, and here they are in their 50, and they've turned from God in the church, and they've renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. They've lost their salvation. Friend, that person hasn't lost their salvation. They never had their salvation. They never did get saved. If they've rena- it proved that wasn't genuine what happened at 10, but you can't lose your salvation. Now, two things that I think would be a good, two good thoughts for us before we close the sermon this morning. As we think about these 144,000, how what we have in common with them. First thought is, these Jewish converts are not ashamed of their faith in Jesus Christ. They have God's name written across their head. And it says to me that we should not be ashamed of our faith in Jesus Christ. That we should let it be known openly and publicly. And that's why we give an invitation uh, one of the reasons, so that you, that you and I, and we can all do that and make it known where we stand with him. But a second thing that speaks to me about these 144,000 Jews today is it put yourself in their shoes. Here they are in the tribulation. Horrible things are happening. And yet God positions his angels at the four corners of the world, north, south, east, and west. They stop the wind. There's a lull in the storm. And what do these Jewish people do? They took advantage of the lull to get saved. God stopped the judgment just long enough for people to think, now wait a second, what's happening around here? What are we experiencing around here? And they knew that it was God. It was his judgment. And they knew that in the pause, the stopping of the wind, it was God causing, giving them a chance to be saved. It was his mercy. Now for us today, I wouldn't say we have a lull in the storm because the storm hasn't come yet. The storm of God's judgment has not come on this earth yet. But here's where we are today. We're in the calm before the storm. And I'm encouraging you today during this calm. I mean, during the tribulation period when that, when that all busts loose, after Christians were all going to heaven, stars falling from the sky, who knows? I mean, more than likely or at least possibly one day a star will fall from heaven, hit this church facility, this building, the building be gone just like that. But it's not doing it today. Nothing damaging this church building today. Nothing is, just notice how calm it is in here. It's not a lull during the storm. It's a calm before the storm. What is God doing? God is giving us a chance to do business with him on whatever level we need to do business with him before the storm comes. And I would say to those today in this service or who are listening, if you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, today, take advantage of the calm. Open your heart to Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And if you'll do that, you will be taken out of here before the storm of God's judgment ever comes upon this earth. Amen. And so, Father, today, we do thank you that you're giving us a prolonged period of calm, even in a world that is becoming more riotous and more troubled, yet there is a sense, certainly compared to the tribulation, where we're still experiencing the calm before the storm.
And God, I pray that we would take advantage of this season that you've mercifully given us to do what we need to do with you. If you've never been saved or you're not sure that you have, would you just pray right now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, save me, forgive me, and make me a Christian. And Father, during the next song, give me the courage to come forward and to make it public. Others today, you've been saved before today, maybe six months ago, maybe five years ago, but you've never confessed Christ publicly. Would you just say, God, today, I didn't even come to church planning on making that decision, but God, today, I need to, I need to let it be known where I stand with you. I don't need to be ashamed. Those 144,000 Jews won't be ashamed. And God, I don't need to be ashamed. Others today, you've already been saved for a long time, maybe, but you feel God leading you to join our church. This next song is an opportunity for you to come to the front, to share with the minister, hey, today I want to put my life here in First Baptist. Father, I pray that during the next song, people will make decisions that will affect eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said.